It seems lately that we have been kind of like almost stuck in Mark. And I don't say that just because we're preaching through Mark. Obviously, on Sunday mornings, we're, we're looking at Mark a lot. But Wednesday night, Brother Don was in Mark. And a couple weeks ago, Brother Josh was in Mark. Uh, these same chapters. And uh, it, just, it just strikes me as a reminder of how, no matter how many times you go to a certain place in the Bible, there's always something to be seen there. We don't read our Bibles through one time and then put them back on the shelf. We keep reading our Bibles every day. Uh, if we've read it a hundred times, we read it again. Because every time you read the Word of God, you get something out of it. And so it doesn't matter how many times we go to these passages, there's always something that the Lord would say to us. And, and I think that'll be the case this morning. I'll try not to preach the same message that Josh preached just a couple weeks ago from this text. Mark chapter 2, let's start looking in verse number 13. Then he went out again by the sea, and all the multitude came to him, and he taught them. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, Follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now it happened, as he was dining in Levi's house, that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many, and they followed him. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, How is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Father God, I pray that you'd bless this message and, and help. I pray you'd fill me with your spirit. Lord, help my mind to be uh, settled on this, your word, and not distracted by other things. Help me, Lord God, to be uh, filled with your spirit to teach. I pray there's nothing, no, no sin, no hindrance, no anything in my life that would prohibit that. And uh, just give clarity and wisdom today, I pray. And then I pray you'd fill us all, Lord, with, with your spirit to hear, that we might have ears to hear, as Jesus said, and that the message that you have for each of us would be received. Help me, Lord, to say everything I need to say and absolutely not a word more. Help me to not say anything I ought not. And just use this time for your glory. And speak to us now, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I once had a dear brother in Christ who would pray prayer meetings and things, and he always said the same thing in his prayer meetings when he was praying. He would always say, Dear Lord, send us a bunch of dirty, rotten sinners. And when I would hear that, at first it would jar, and I would think, ooh. And then I would think, you know, we all ought to be praying that. We all ought to be praying that. Send us a bunch of dirty, rotten sinners, because this passage reminds us of Jesus coming in the first place, doesn't it? Jesus came into this world to save such dirty, rotten sinners. The Bible tells me in Luke chapter 19, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. We're reminded here that the dirtier they are, the more they need His cleansing. The rottener they are, the more they need His freshening. And the more sin they have, the more of His forgiveness they need. Levi, or Matthew, was just such a person. And from Jesus' call of him here, the account of Christ calling him to salvation and discipleship, we, we learn some things. We learn specifically that the worst of sinners can be saved. And, and we learn something else as well. We learn that this from the feast that took place in Matthew's home. We learn from that incident that uh, not only can they be saved, but they first of all have to see their need to be saved. Both of those things are seen here. Just as the alcoholic who doesn't confess that he's an alcoholic, will most likely rot in the gutter and find no help 
And just as the compulsive gambler, because he doesn't see his problem, will probably die penniless. So the sinner who thinks he's not a sinner is going to die and go to hell. There's very few things that I could say to you from this pulpit that would be more clearly demonstrable from Scripture than that. If you do not see your need of salvation and come to Christ, you will die and go to hell. So there are two truths that are found in the call of Matthew. First of all, I would suggest we see the beauty of salvation, and we see that in his call. And secondly, we see the need for salvation, and we see that in the the feast that he threw thereafter. So that's how I want to divide this up today. Let's look first of all at the call of Matthew, and in that we're going to see the beauty of salvation. In this passage, and this is really the first couple of verses that we read, verses 13 and 14 there, uh, in this passage we're reminded Jesus did not bring salvation to just a targeted few, but rather a salvation that's available to all. And I don't know about you, but I think that's a beautiful thing. A beautiful thing. The hope we have in Christ is beautiful for so many reasons, but not least of which is that fact. It's available for and reaches to even the most despised and even the most outcast among us, whosoever will may come. Over and over we're told that in the Bible, whoever believes Jesus is the Christ is born of God, First John chapter 5 and verse number 1. Revelation 22, 17, the Spirit and the bride say, come and let him who hears say, come and let him who thirsts come, whoever desires, whosoever will in the King James. Let him take the water of life freely. Acts 10.43, to him all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. Matthew was a tax collector. Now, it's true that Mark here in this passage calls him Levi. Actually, both the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Luke refer to this person as Levi. Matthew himself, in his Gospel, is the one who refers to himself as Matthew. But he's also referenced as Matthew in other places, Mark chapter 3, Matthew chapter 9 and 10. And so both of those names refer to the same person. It's not unusual for people to have more than one name. Some of you know me as Bill. Some of you maybe know me as William. My mother still calls me Billy, which drives me crazy. I'm not even going to respond to that. I took French class in high school, and some people in the room know me as Guillaume because I took French class in high school. And so it's not unusual, is it? We see it all throughout the Bible that a person might be known by more than one name. Peter, of course, was also known as Cephas and also as Simon, and then Jesus changed his name to Peter. Saul of Tarsus became Paul, the apostle. Abram became Abraham. Sarai became Sarah. Uh, We see that all throughout Scripture. And so it's not unusual to us that here we see Levi and Matthew are referring to the same person. Some suggest, and, and, and most commentators would seem to agree, that it appears Jesus somewhere along the line here changed his name. Just as he did with Peter, he changed uh, Levi's name to Matthew, which means gift of God. But here was this man, Matthew, or Levi, and he was a tax collector. Now let me read a little bit to you about uh, just what that entailed. I'm, I'm going to read a, a section from a commentary here that uh, describes this uh, better than I could. The Romans collected their taxes through a system called tax farming, which was similar to farming out franchises such as a McDonald's fast food restaurant. They assessed a district a fixed tax figure and then sold the right to collect taxes to the highest bidder. The buyer had to hand over the assessed figure at the end of the year and could keep whatever he gathered above that. 
The obvious potential for extortion was compounded by the poor communication characteristic of ancient times, so people had no exact record of what they were to pay. The system consisted of two categories of taxes. First, there were stated taxes. There was a poll tax, which all men ages 14 to 65 and women 12 to 65 had to pay simply for the reason of being alive. I'm surprised our government hasn't figured that one out yet. There was a ground tax, which required one-tenth of all grain and one-fifth of all wine and oil produced. In some places, the Romans also exacted a tax on fish, and very possibly this was done in Capernaum, which is what we're reading about here, because it was a fishing community. Finally, there was an income tax, which was 1% of one's annual income. Wouldn't that be nice? In these stated taxes, there was not much room for extortion because they knew what it was. It was published. It was stated. They knew what the rate was. But there was a second area of taxes, duties. And in this area, there was ample opportunity for abuse. The people paid separate taxes for using roads and docking in harbors. There was a sales tax on certain items as well as import and export duties. A tax was even paid on a cart. In fact, each wheel was taxed. The system fostered exploitation by the arbitrary power of the tax gatherers. They could stop anyone on the road, make him or her unpack their bundles, and charge just about anything they wanted. If a person could not pay, the tax collectors sometimes would offer to loan money at an exorbitant rate, of course, thus pulling the people further into their greedy hands. They were trained extortionists. And quite naturally, they attracted a criminal element of thugs and enforcers, the scum of society. So rare was honesty in the profession that a Roman writer once said that he saw a monument to an honest tax collector. The Jewish tax collectors were easily the most hated men in Hebrew society. They were considered to be despicable vermin. They were not only hated for their extortion, but also because they were the lackeys of the Romans, much as the French hated Nazi collaborators during World War II. These Jews could not serve as a judge. They could not witness in a court session. They were excommunicated from the synagogues. They were, frankly, the lowest of the lowest of the low. Sometimes we are tempted, aren't we, to think that there are some who are hopeless, some who are so far gone or so much the enemies of Christ that they simply cannot be reached. They cannot be saved. Jonah The prophet Jonah had that kind of a mindset. Let me just read you a little something here from Jonah. You remember God told Jonah to go to the Ninevites, and he ignored God's call, so God sent a big fish and swallowed him up. And then after he'd had enough of that, he got vomited out on the shore, and uh, then he decided maybe I better listen this time. And he went to preach to the Ninevites, but he didn't want to go. He hated the Ninevites. He thought they were despicable vermin. He thought they were unsavable. He thought they had no right to be saved. So he went. He did what he had to do. He preached. And God set great revival, and they repented. Good things happened. And then I'll listen to this at the very end of the book. John chapter 3 and verse number 10, God saw their works, the Ninevites, and, and uh, that they turned from their evil way. And God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. So he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know you're a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. He would rather die than see his enemies come to Christ. That's where he was. That was the mind that he had. And I think sometimes we're like that. Sometimes I think we're tempted to think there are some who are hopeless, We don't even really want to be saved. 
Sometimes we think that way of people who have hurt us personally. I think sometimes we're guilty of thinking that way about those who don't measure up maybe in our own minds to our social standards. Ah, instead of thinking them worthy of Christ, we turn up our lip at them. We think them beneath us. God needs to forgive us of such sinful leanings. We need to repent of them. And we need to learn from Matthew here, from the call of Matthew, that even the most hated, even the most despised, even the most downtrodden can be saved. Saul of Tarsus persecuted the church, murdered Christians, and yet he was saved. The maniac of Gadara was a terror to everybody who saw him. People ran from him, and yet he was saved. The thief on the cross laughed at Christ initially as he hung there beside him until he came to his senses and was saved. John Newton, the slave trader. You've heard of John Newton. He was so hated by his crew. At least I've read this somewhere. I don't know if this is true or not. It seems almost ridiculous that it would be true. But I've read that he was so hated by his crew that they once rescued him from falling overboard by throwing a harpoon at him, spearing him through the leg and dragging him back onto the boat. That's how much of a hated person he was, and yet he was saved. Around our world today, there are multitudes of people, millions of people, who were once enslaved by Islam, therefore seemingly beyond the reach of the gospel, seemingly impossible that they could be saved, but they're coming to Christ in droves. People are being saved now. And here even Matthew, this tax collector, this despicable vermin, was saved. And so we see that anybody can be saved. Kent Hughes said in his, uh, his comments on this, he said, Jesus sought out the man no one else wanted. The one everyone else wished would fall under the immediate wrath of God. Jesus saw a man in Levi, not a category. And he knew what that man could become. I read where centuries ago, a number of workmen were seen dragging a large block of marble uh, into, the, into uh, the back of a yard of a cathedral there in Florence, Italy. And it had come from the famous marble quarries in Carrara. And it was supposed to be used to make a statue of a great Old Testament figure. The person who was going to carve that statue was a great sculptor. His name was Donatello. But he saw that block of marble, and he saw imperfections in it. And so he said, no, I'm not going to use that. And so that block of marble sat there, unused in that cathedral yard for some time. I don't know how long, but for some time. But one day another sculptor caught sight of that block of marble, and he saw something in it. And so for two years, he began to work on that block of marble, carving something secretly. Nobody knew what he was doing until the day. Uh, it was January 25th, 1504. He gathered together the great artists of the day. Leonardo da Vinci was there. Uh, Pietro Perugino, I never heard that person, but he was the teacher of Raphael. Botticelli was there. They were all there to see it. And he dropped the veil, and they were all astonished and resounding a praise for this masterpiece, which is still considered one of the greatest masterpieces today because it was Michelangelo's David, the most beautiful, perhaps, sculpture that the world has ever seen. Christ saw in the flawed life of Levi a tax collector, Matthew, the gift of God, a writer and an evangelist. And he still sees men and women with that artist's eye. He sees beyond our imperfections. The Scripture says in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse number 10 that we are God's workmanship. Poema is the Greek word there from which we get our word poem, 
masterpiece. We are his masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. He sees in us what no one else sees. So salvation is a beautiful thing because it reaches to all. Salvation is also a beautiful thing because it can totally change a life. Consider what must have happened here in the life of Levi when he became Matthew. He was a changed man. Had to have been a changed man. A change that's illustrated, I think, in his, in his name change. And maybe that's why we have that in Scripture. He was Levi. He became Matthew, which means gift of God. Can you imagine the impact when Matthew suddenly started appearing to people? People who knew the old Levi, and now they saw the new Matthew come walking around. They saw that Levi's dishonesty had been replaced with Matthew's honesty. They saw that the ruthlessness toward people that Levi had shown was now replaced with the love of Christ that Matthew now showed. They saw Levi's heart that had been so bent on making money at any cost, now replaced with a heart that just wanted to tell people about Jesus and follow Jesus and show them the love of Jesus. Nothing can change a life like a relationship with Jesus Christ. Absolutely nothing. We mentioned Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus became Paul the Apostle and went on to uh, be perhaps the greatest Christian the world has ever seen. That maniac of Gadara from which everybody fled became the soul winner of Gadara. The five times immoral woman at the well became the cause of great revival in Samaria. And that drunken John Newton, that dude who got pulled in with a harpoon, he wrote Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me and went on to preach the gospel for many years. And here we see Levi, that tax collector, becoming Matthew, the apostle, a follower of Jesus Christ, and the author of the first book in our New Testament that bears his name. So salvation is beautiful because of the change it makes in life. And then there's another thing I think that reminds us salvation is beautiful, and that is this. Salvation is beautiful because it pays so well. Some say, and I don't know if this is true or not, but some say that Matthew probably gave up more than any of the other apostles in order to follow Jesus. And it is true that many of them could have returned to fishing. And actually, when we come to the end of the Gospels, we see that there was a moment there when Peter said, let's go back to fishing. And so they they always had that option to them, but not Matthew. Matthew, he didn't have any such option. He was burning his bridges here. There was nothing to return to. As a matter of fact, in in Luke, I think it is, Luke chapter 5 and verse 28 Uh, Luke says it like this, Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. It was a decisive act. He gave up his business. There was no going back. But I doubt he ever regretted that decision. I doubt he ever was was, was bothered by that. Because think what happened to him. He got to walk with Jesus Christ for three years. He gained fame that only a handful of men would ever gain. He was used of God to write the very first gospel in our New Testament. And he traded in a life of wickedness for a life of joy. He traded in hell for heaven. And so I don't think he regretted it. You know, remember, brothers and sisters, you can't outgive God. That's true in every area of our life. And it's certainly true in, in, in this. It's just one more reason salvation is beautiful. I've never met anybody who regretted being saved. You ever met anybody who regretted being saved? It just doesn't exist. So in summing up what happened to Levi here, Warren Wiersbe says this. He says he burned his bridges. He left everything behind. He received a new name. Matthew, the gift of God, and he then enthusiastically invited some of his sinner friends to meet the Lord Jesus. And that's the next part of the story that I want us to consider now. For after Jesus called him, Matthew hosted a dinner in his home, and Jesus attended along with his disciples. There were others there. There was Pharisees, 
and there was a bunch of Levi's friends. In Matthew's call, we saw the beauty of salvation. Well, in, in this now, in this feast, I think we see the need for salvation. And this is in verses 15 through 17 of our text today. And the first thing we see about it is that it was a big need. It was a large need. Look at verse 15. It happened as he was dining in Levi's house that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many, and they followed him. Two times there in that verse we see the word many. I want to circle that in your Bibles. The need was large. The need is large. Every day they pass me by, the songwriter says. I can see it in their eyes, empty people filled with care, headed who knows where. There are billions of people in this world. Billions. And if the Bible is true, and is the Bible true? If the Bible is true, which it is, then most of those billions of people are lost and headed for hell. Most of them are not even under the sound of the gospel, living in places where there is little or no gospel witness because so few of us surrender to go and take it to them. There are thousands of people in our own Jerusalem. And if the Bible is true, and is the Bible true? then most of them are lost and headed for hell. As it happened, as he was dining in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus' and his disciples, for there were many and they followed him. Yeah, we ought to underline that word many. It ought to convict us because it tells us, it reminds us that the need is large. Another songwriter said, my house is full, but my field is empty. Who will go and work for me today? It seems my children all want to stay around my table, but no one wants to work in my field. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 9 to his disciples, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest that he would send out laborers into his harvest. He said in John chapter 4 and verse number 35, There are still four months and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are already white for harvest. If we think about the need for salvation, one of the things it ought to do for us He's caused us to want to raise up some, even from our own number, who will go and preach the gospel and share so some of those many will be saved. May God help us see the need because it was large. And we see that as we look around this table as they're eating there. But we see something else. Not only was it a large need, but I think there's something even clearer here. We see here that that need had to be recognized first. Or there could be no salvation. The need had to be recognized first, or there could be no salvation. Look at verse 16. When the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, How is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Think about a couple of words that are used there. Both the Pharisees and Jesus used one of these words. They used the word sinner. Did you see that there? The Pharisees used that in verse number 16. Jesus used it in verse number 17. They were not using it the same way. The Pharisees were referring to those who did not follow their strict interpretation of the law, their oral traditions that had been passed down regarding the Mosaic law. And so as a result, they did not consider themselves to be sinners. That's the way they defined the word. In verse number 17, when Jesus used the word, he used it to include all those apart from him, all those in need of the Savior and salvation, literally everybody. And he was including the Pharisees in that category and in his use of that word. 
He was using the word in its normal sense, its real sense, the sense that the Bible uses it in Romans chapter 3 and verse number 23 when it says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Jesus also used the word righteous in verse number 17. Do you see that? The Pharisees didn't actually use that word, but they were clearly thinking it in their minds. In their minds, they were righteous. You see, they had a self-righteousness. They considered themselves to be beyond the need of salvation. And that's the type of righteousness Jesus is describing in verse number 17 when he says, I didn't come to call the righteous. That seems like an odd statement, doesn't it? Jesus doesn't want the righteous? No, that's not what he meant. What he meant was, I don't want that kind of righteous. I don't want the self-righteous. I didn't come for them. We would be totally accurate to read his statement as, I did not come to call the self-righteous but sinners to repentance. And so we have to be clear on this. We have to understand what Jesus is saying. He was saying here that the self-righteous will not be saved. Those who think that they are beyond the need of it, as the Pharisees were. Those who don't see themselves as sinners will not be saved. He was saying, in effect, I can do nothing for those who are already righteous in their own mind. And that was the state of those Pharisees. Now, it was not the state of all the Pharisees. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, and he was saved. Saul of Tarsus was a Pharisee, and he was saved, so it wasn't all of them. But most of them were too self-righteous to see their need, and so they died lost. And if the Bible's true, and it is, then they're in hell today. And so I wonder this morning, maybe some, some here see themselves in that. Maybe some of you are like that. Maybe in your heart of hearts you know that you're one of those ones who, when presented with the topic of sin and your need for repentance and your need of a Savior, think to yourself, well, I'm just as good as the next guy. Is that what you think? Maybe your pride wells up and comes up with all kinds of reasons why others need to kneel and ask forgiveness, but you're okay. You don't need that. To you, Jesus says, I did not come to call the self-righteous, but sinners to repentance. You see, Jesus only saves sinners. We need to remember that. He only saves sinners. And if you can't get to or won't get to the place where you admit that you're such, you can't be saved. You see, the self-righteous, like these Pharisees here, you know what they do? They commit what the Bible refers to as the unpardonable sin. When we get to the next chapter in Mark chapter 3, we're going to see Jesus' description of that one sin that cannot be forgiven. Mark chapter 3, verse 28, Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they may utter. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation. Seems a contradiction, doesn't it? In the first verse, he says, all sin will be forgiven. And then in the next verse, he says, oh, but there's one sin that won't be forgiven. What is that? One sin. If all sin is pardoned at the foot of the cross, I suggest to you that not going to the foot of the cross is the unforgivable sin. Not recognizing that you're lost, that you're a sinner, that you're in need of the Savior. That's the unforgivable sin. Not turning to Christ. That's the unforgivable sin. One man said, man is lost not just because he has sinned, but because he has refused God's remedy for sin. One time, these Pharisees, and maybe some of these very same ones, uh, said to Jesus, are we blind also? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say, we see. Therefore, your sin remains. See, it was their self-righteousness that condemned them. 
and so with all those who do not see their need of a Savior. So what then do we learn from the call and the feast of Matthew? Well, I think we can sum it up in a single sentence. Anybody can be saved if they first admit their need to be saved. Anybody can be saved if they first admit their need to be saved. I was once a sinner, just like Levi. But on May 3rd, 1970, right there, I became a spotless, pure believer in Jesus Christ because as a 12-year-old, I came to recognize that I was a sinner. And uh, just like Matthew, I saw how greatly I needed salvation. And I knelt and I asked for it. And thank God that the salvation that was offered to Matthew through Jesus Christ was available to save Matthew. It was just as available to save me. And it's just as available to save you. Anybody can be saved if they'll just admit their need for salvation. So have you done that? Have you admitted your need for salvation? Have you experienced the beauty of salvation? Let us pray. Father God, we are so thankful for the privilege of looking at your word. And Father, it is your word. All parts of it are your word. And uh, we're just so thankful for the examples that we see here. We have the story of Matthew. Thank you for him. Thank you for what you teach us there. Thank you, Lord, that we see in this person that people would have so hated and loathed and so looked down on and so wanted to get his from you. And yet, Lord, we see that you saw something different in him. You saw a soul. You saw potential. You saw a gift of God. You saw Matthew the evangelist. You saw Matthew the apostle. You saw the one who would write the first gospel. You saw a soul that could be saved and redeemed and made beautiful. And so, Lord, I pray that we'll see the same. I, say, I pray we'll see the same in others. Lord, forgive us when we look down on others, when we look at somebody like Jonah did, or perhaps like these Pharisees did, and our lips curl and they don't meet up to our expectations. Forgive us for that. Cleanse us of that kind of wickedness. Let us not be Pharisees, Father, and forgive us when we are. But, Lord, I pray even more so that if there's one here today who, like Matthew, is presented with the opportunity to confess their sin, repent of their sin, and turn their life over to Christ, I pray they'd do it if they never have. And I pray, Lord, they wouldn't walk away. Lord, if there's even one here today who needs to trust Christ and be saved, would you save their soul this day? Anybody can be saved, Lord. We learn that from your word. If they'll just see their need, and so help them to see that today. Whatever other needs might be here today as we sing and wrap up our service, I pray, Lord, that you would just speak to our hearts if you're dealing with us in some other way. And we need to just come and pray. Whatever you want us to do, help us to do. And honor yourself in all of it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.